Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls with the ABA Journal. And this episode, we have a very special treat for our listeners. I will be speaking with the three finalists for the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction in 2017. Now, the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction is awarded by the University of Alabama School of Law and the ABA Journal. And in about a week, we should find out who of these three finalists has won the award. Now, first up, I'll be speaking to Jody Picot, author of Small Great Things, followed by Graham Moore, author of The Last Days of Night, and finishing up with James Grappando, author of Gone Again. So let's now cut to my first interview with Jody Picot. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. My name is Lee Rawls, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Jody Picot. She's the author of 25 books, um, most of them bestsellers, and she is one of the three finalists for the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction. Jody, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, full disclosure for our listeners, I was a member of the selection committee for the Harper Lee Prize. Oh, uh, oh yeah, I don't, Jody, maybe you didn't know that. And uh, I did not yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> we read more than 20 submitted books um, every year for the prize, and then we pick the three finalists, and then um, judges will select from those three finalists the winner of the Harper Lee Prize. Uh, and you, the listener, uh, If you are hearing this before June 30th, you can register your vote online at the ABA Journal. Uh, So, Jody, did you know that your book was being submitted for this prize? I knew about it um, after it was submitted by my publishing company because they said, oh, we're submitting you for this prize. I said, oh, that's great. I mean, they submit for everything. So (laughs) to actually become a finalist usually does not happen. So it was really a, a lovely little delight. And this particular book that um, is the finalist for the prize is Small Great Things. Uh, What about writing this book was different from any of the 24 others that you've written? This book was tremendously different for me. And uh, to be honest, is probably the most life-changing book that I have written in my career. And it's because it's about racism in America right now. And um, I... I couldn't write this book about biases unless I had really unpacked my own. And I thought I was, you know, a really nice white woman who wasn't prejudiced. (laughs) And and I didn't think it was going to be as much of a learning experience for me as it was. This book really started me on a journey of anti-racism. And um, it's one that's continued long after I finished the book. So it really changed the person that I am. Um, and, you know, I hear from a lot of readers who've said this book really made them aware of their privileges, if they're white, uh, really made them take a look at their own attitudes and behaviors. That's certainly what I was intending when I started it. I just didn't realize that I was also going to be someone who was as deeply affected. So you write from the point of view of three main characters in this book. Could you tell our readers who have not read Small Great Things yet um, who these three kind of central characters are and what the story starts out as. Yes. 
The story actually comes from a nugget of truth that was a a legal case that happened in Flint, Michigan in 2012. An African-American nurse with 20 years of experience on a labor and delivery ward helped to deliver a child. And in the aftermath, the father called over her supervisor and said, I don't want her or anyone who looks like her touching my baby. He then pushed up his sleeve to reveal a swastika tattoo. The hospital put a post-it note in the baby's file saying no African-American personnel to touch this infant. And the nurse and a bunch of other colleagues of color sued the hospital. They settled. I hope she got an awful lot of money. But it made me kind of wonder, what if? What if I pushed the envelope? What if that nurse was the only one alone with the baby when something went wrong? What if she had to choose between following her supervisor's orders or saving the baby's life? What if, as a result, she wound up on trial with a white public defender who, like me, like a lot of my friends, would never consider herself to be a racist? And what if I could tell the story with three narrators, the African-American nurse, the white supremacist father, and the white public defender, as they all began to face their beliefs about power and privilege and race? And... I had tried in my career about 25 years ago to write a book about racism, and I had failed miserably. I couldn't seem to create real characters, situations, dialogue, and I really questioned whether I as a white person had the right to write a book about race in America. This scenario, it was suddenly as if a lock had turned, um, like I knew, I knew I was going to be able to finish it this time, and something had changed. I wasn't writing a book about racism to tell people of color how hard life is, because frankly, that is never going to be my story to tell. I was writing to people who look like me, people with light skin, people who can very easily point to a white supremacist and say, oh, that's a racist, but have a harder time pointing to themselves and saying the same thing. And just like that, I knew I was going to be able to finish this particular book. One of the other added elements that you had in this book that I thought was so powerful was uh, Ruth is a nurse, but her mother was a domestic and worked in the house of a wealthy white family. And Ruth was raised alongside a white girl who was her age. And their relationship as adults is so complicated. Was there anything in your life like that? No, I grew up in and, and, you know, I should actually back up and say that this was all stuff I had to think about when I started writing the book, stuff that I really had never thought about. You know, I was 50 years old. I was writing this book, and I never really thought about racism. And I, I didn't realize until I started working on small, great things that ignorance is a privilege in and of itself. I grew up in a very white neighborhood. I grew up in a school that was predominantly white. I had friends in college who were um, people of color, you know, uh, there was this one girl, an African-American girl who I used to have lunch with every week after we had a creative writing workshop, and I would call her my friend. But I never went out to a movie with her. I never hung out with her on Saturday night. So why was I calling her my friend? I never had a discussion about racism with her. You know, the things now that I would consider a true friendship are very different than what I told myself were friendships. Um, that was something that I I really wanted to to unpack in my own life and to somehow um, filter into the book. Uh, you know, the stories that, that you see in the book, the story of Ruth and what her life is, she is an African-American woman who has tried to give her son the best life that he can have. And to her, that means 
flying under the radar of white society, living in a predominantly white neighborhood, putting her son into a predominantly white school, uh, working in a predominantly white environment, um, as if she can negate the fact that she is a different skin color than the people she's around. Uh, and all of those experiences that, that become the fictional basis for Ruth's life came from multiple women of color who I interviewed for hundreds of hours in order to really understand more about their lives, their, their upbringings, their hopes, their fears, their, their failures, their successes. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of in this book is that the readers of color who have come to it have said it, it rings true to them. And honestly, if that's the case, it's all due to these women who opened up their lives and their hearts to me. So to change gears very abruptly, let's talk about the white supremacist father <laughs> character, Turk Bauer and his wife, Britt. Right. That yeah. is a hard mindset to get into, I imagine. I know that when I read some of the chapters, mm -hmm. and each chapter is written in first person, it's very clear who's speaking. Um, mm -hmm. But after a few chapters, I, I just felt like I wanted to shower. It was being inside the head of someone who had such hateful views um, was very difficult. It's funny you use that because th that is exactly what I say about writing Turk. Every time I wrote one of his chapters, I would go down and take a shower because I just felt dirty. So to get into that mindset, to really get in touch with what these people who have white supremacist views, what they're actually thinking, what their kind of background was, um, how, how did you do that? Uh, were you reading Stormfront just to get the voice or, or what was, uh, what, yeah. Um, yeah, nobody should ever check my search history on my computer. But, um, honestly, for me, it again was research and it was again, finding people who had lived these experiences. So in my case, I sat down with two different men who have been white supremacists and who have left the white supremacy movement and are now really advocating in the anti-racism world. Um, the first guy is a, a man um, named Tim Zoll. He grew up in Orange County, California, in a very privileged community. Uh, he ran with a white supremacist gang. And one night, he and his buddies beat up a gay man and left him to die in the street, bleeding out. Years later, when he got out of the movement for a variety of reasons, one of the first things he did was write to the rabbi who was the head of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in, in L.A. Because at some point in his career as a skinhead, he had written the guy a really offensive letter. And so basically this rabbi said to him, come work for me. And Tim did. He went there and he would give talks every day about leaving a life of hate. One day he was sitting in the cafeteria. And he looked up and he saw the face of the man that he had beaten up and left to die. This man was now leading tour groups through the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Their eyes met. There were months of apologies and forgiveness and discussions. And now they actually consider themselves friends. They spend holidays at each other's houses. And every day they get up together and they talk about their experience and their story together to different groups. Um, the other gentleman that I spoke with is a man named Frankie Mink. He uh, works 
in Iowa now, but he used to run a very violent skinhead crew in Philadelphia. And like many skinheads, he was sent to jail at one point. And in jail, he discovered to his surprise that he had more in common with the young African-American kids than he did the white kids. They would talk about the girls they missed on the outside and the food they missed on the outside. And they would go to Bible study together. When he got out of jail, his first job was to work for a Jewish man. And he had been told his whole life that Jewish people will try to cheat you out of your money. So the night before his contract was up, he was called into the boss's office, and he thought, oh, here it comes. I'm going to get cheated out of my, my contract, my, my cash. And the boss said to him, Frankie, you've done such an exemplary job. We'd actually like to pay you double what we contracted you for. And he began to realize how many exceptions to the rule do there have to be before maybe you realize that the rules are wrong. Both Frankie and Tim told me that today skinheads are different. They don't wear their Doc Martens and their suspenders with their shaved heads anymore. They look like you and me. They spend most of their time online trying to create an atmosphere of hate and anxiety through posts on social media. And they work in small cells or individually rather than wilding in groups now. Um, they also will go into communities and make it look like there are more of them than there actually are. They might leave the, the final call from the Nation of Islam underneath all the windshield wipers in a temple parking lot, for example, just to, you know, freak people out. They also told me that in the spring for Hitler's birthday and the summer for Aryan Independence Day, in rural areas like where I live up in New Hampshire, you can actually follow some signs off the beaten path to a muddy field and celebrate with like-minded people. You pitch a tent and listen to white power bands and get tattoos, and there'll be swastika lightings at night, and you can bring the kids because there are kitty games, like, for example, Pin the Star on the Jew, or a piñata that's actually an African-American man hanging from a noose. You can target shoot at targets that look like Martin Luther King Jr. and President Obama. It's 2017. We live in America. Someone in this country is making those materials for this, these groups to use. And that's horrifying. Well, I think particularly during the campaign, uh, we've started hearing more about, they're, often they're calling themselves the alt-right, and it's white supremacy by another name. Mm -hmm. It is. It's a label, and it is exactly what you're thinking of. And yes, you know, I, I do think that since the election, that group has become more emboldened. And we're not just seeing random posts on Twitter you know, we are seeing uh, news articles and, and um, we are seeing a much more active uh, representation of that, that voice and that hate speech than we have before. It was kind of, you know, simmering under the surface, but that seedy underbelly of America has been revealed. So all three of these main characters are parents uh, and they're parents in different um different ways. You know, Turk Bowers, child dies almost immediately, but but. You know he's he's still a father and and he's he's grieving. Um, Kennedy McQuarrie, the the public defender, she has children, and Ruth Jefferson has a son, and all three of them have very different concerns for their children. In writing this book, did it make you examine the sorts of things that you're worried about for your children <laughs> or that you're hoping for them? And I don't know how old your children are. I know that one of your daughters at least is an adult because she has written a series with you. You know, honestly, I, I actually look at my writing career as the long history of everything that scares me for my children. 
um, you know, I've I've looked at things like uh, teen suicide and kidnapping and um, childhood illness and uh, you know, you name it. I've I've sort of veered there mentally in a, a fictional novel in the hopes that superstitiously, if I cover the ground in a novel, I won't have to do it in real life. Um, I don't think it works. Well, that you know, way, there are worse been, ways. I have been very lucky. <laughs> Um, I think in this case, my kids are older now. They're um, 21, 23, and 25. But um, in this case, the reason that, that Ruth and Kennedy and Turk are all parents is because that is the great equalizer. We can all stand on separate sides of the fence and not be able to see over it. And yet we'll still have certain things in common. And in the case of Small Great Things, that is what all of these characters have in common. They all have a um, a child or or uh, multiple you know dependents that they are that they care about and that they are trying to do their best by. How they go about that is different, and part of the learning experience, particularly for the friendship between Ruth and Kennedy, that develops as they really come to see each other not as um, client and attorney, and not as white person and black person, but as two women. Um, who have this fundamental uh, connection of parenthood is to realize that sometimes what we have in common is what we have to seek out if we're actually going to affect change. Could you talk about the title of the book, Small Great Things, and how you came to it? Mm -hmm. So um, there is a quote that is attributed to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If I cannot do um, great things, I can do small things in a great way. And the reason I love that is because racism is terrifying to think about. It's terrifying to write about, but it's also really overwhelming to think about. It is big and messy and systemic and institutional. And just one person saying, I am going to acknowledge my white privilege and I am going to try to to move through this world in a way that is anti-racist, it's not enough. Um, because there are systems and there are institutions in place that really have historically been designed to keep people of color down. However, institutions and organizations are made up of people. And if you begin to change one mind at a time, you can eventually change an entire system or change an entire organization. And it's not with one global stroke. It is with lots of tiny chisels chipping away. Um, and so that, that quote really spoke to me, and it's used in the book, and um, it seemed to me to be the best, the best measure of what I was trying to get across in, in this particular book. Um, you know, racism is, is really thorny, and one of the reasons that I came to it through a book that, that takes a very legal bend is because race is not addressed in courtrooms. You know, yeah, we have... We have certain um, uh, procedures in place to make sure that a jury isn't technically biased. Um, but, you know, look at the most racially motivated cases of the past five or ten years. The attorneys don't bring up race in a courtroom because you just don't know what it's going to do to a jury or a judge. And when I was doing my research for this with four very competent, wonderful attorneys, we were having knockdown, drag them out arguments because I said, here's the deal. I don't know how we're going to get there, but we are going to get this attorney to give a closing statement that is all about race. And they were like, no, 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 she's going to lose her case. And I said, no, but that's the point. 
The point is it's going to take an attorney who is willing to lose the case for the greater good of what might come in the future to think that we might then have subsequent attorneys who will do it. And that was really one of the impetuses for me of writing this particular book. And for lawyers listening, uh, the client is all in favor <laughs> of giving this statement and actually is trying to convince the attorney. Yes. It's not the attorney trying right. to convince the client. Um, our right. our right. audience is, is mostly <laughs> lawyers, and I just wanted to reassure them. <laughs> it is. It is. I will say, after we had that big argument, um, we did find a legitimate way to make it work. So. <laughs> I think you really did. So... I'm going to ask all of the authors who are finalists for the for the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction this. Uh, have you read To Kill a Mockingbird? Have you seen the movie? Do you remember <laughs> the first time you saw it, the movie or read the book? Yes, I do. I was The first time I read the book was in high school. And I probably, I don't remember when I watched the movie, but it couldn't have been much, much further, you know, past that. Um, <clears throat> and the funny thing is that, I mean, I was really really deeply affected by it. And I thought a lot about To Kill a Mockingbird when I sat down to write this book. Because, you know, when we write fiction today and we write about race, there are a lot of questions about cultural appropriation and about who has the right to write a certain story. And if you look at authors who address racism in their writing, if you're white, it's usually addressed in a historical perspective. Um, either the 1950s or even further back to slavery, very few white authors will tackle race head on in the 21st century. And I really, I did have to ask myself, why am I doing this? Am I doing it to profit off somebody else's oppression? Am I doing it to tell people who look like me something they need to hear? And, and once I decided on the latter, I was able to go forward. And I tried to think of other examples of, of white authors who have written about racism and have done it in a way that was sort of shattering to white readers. And I came up with To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> and, you know, that I would never, I would never in a million years compare myself to Harper Lee or to this book, to that book. That to me is an amazing classic. It was really um, humbling and shocking and wonderful when readers began to come back with feedback saying this is a modern day to kill a mockingbird that made me you know that made my head explode <laughs> I, I couldn't think of a, a greater compliment as an author uh, and if my book accomplishes even a small fraction of what to kill a mockingbird accomplished in terms of um, really casting a an honest view of what racism is uh, particularly to someone who is white and what your role is in institutional racism as a white person, um, well, then I'd be eternally grateful. And then I'm always interested in this. If you could write outside the genre you're used to, you write kind of a general fiction, you've written mm -hmm. for young, young adult fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, if you had to write outside the genre you usually write in, <laughs> what would you choose? Um, I'm going to cheat a little because it's something that I'm already doing, but uh, I would write the uh, the script, the book of, of the musical. You would write a musical. That's, that's I, intriguing, Jody. Yeah, but, you know, it, not, not the music. I don't have the talent for that. But the person who writes the dialogue and structures the show is called the book writer. Um, and uh, that's what I would do. All right. Well, we will be on the lookout for some further <laughs> news about that project. <laughs> 
Well, Jody, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this Absolutely. was really a treat to talk to you after having read the book. Uh, yeah, we may or may not see you at the award ceremony. <laughs> well, it is an honor either way. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you, Jody, and thank you to our listeners. Many thanks to Jody Picot for joining us for the Modern Law Library. Next up, we're going to hear from the second of our three Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction finalists, Graham Moore, author of The Last Days of Night. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with the author of The Last Days of Night, Graham Moore. Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for talking to me. So, Graham, one of the reasons we're talking to you is that you are a finalist for the Harper Lee Prize. Uh, did you know that your book was being submitted for this? No, no one told me. It was quite a shock and a, a very happy surprise to find out that um, I'd been selected as a finalist. So the book that uh, we selected, because I was on the selection committee for the Harper Lee Prize for our listeners, The Last Days of Night, could you give us a brief synopsis of the plot? And a lot happens, folks, so buckle up. Um, sure. The Last Days of Night is about the legal wrangling between Thomas Edison, George Westinghouse, and Nikola Tesla over the invention of the light bulb. So the lead character is a, a real lawyer named Paul Cravath, which um, modern lawyers may know as the namesake of the firm Cravath, Swain, and Moore. But way back in the 1880s, in 1888, um, he, was, he was not the namesake of much of anything. Um, he was a young lawyer new to New York. And when he was only 18 months out of Columbia Law School, he was, despite having never had a real client before or really tried a case, he was selected by George Westinghouse to be his lead litigator uh, after Thomas Edison had just sued Westinghouse for what their, their folks imagined was about a lawsuit worth about a billion dollars in 1888, um, which, as, as you might imagine, is the sort of money worth going to court over. Um, and so Westinghouse did this crazy thing, picking this 26-year-old attorney, 18 months out of law school, Paul Cravath, to be his lead litigator on the case. Um, and that is what my book is. It's a sort of bit of historical fiction, um, very much based on reality about the light bulb case, the dispute between Edison, Westinghouse, and Tesla, and all told from the perspective of Paul Cravath, this young, ambitious lawyer at the center of the whole story. So when you decided to write about this historical series of events, did you consider doing it in a nonfiction way or did you always plan on fictionalizing it? Yeah, you know, it's one, it's something that when I started researching it, I knew that I wanted to write about the relationship between Edison, Westinghouse, and Tesla. I thought there was this really fascinating question. How did three different people each think they were the one who invented the light bulb? Um, and so I started researching the story and, you know, there are some great biographies of Edison, um, not too much actually on either Westinghouse or Tesla. And as, as I kept going through it, I kept asking myself, like, okay, whose story do I want to tell? Whose, whose perspective on this rivalry do I want to get into? Do I want to explore? And, and that's when I found this single sentence kind of buried deep within an Edison biography that just mentioned that Westinghouse's lead litigator in this massive lawsuit was a young lawyer named Paul Cravath. And so a light bulb went off in my head, figuratively speaking. Um, and I said, oh, is that the same... Is that the same Paul Cravath of Cravath, Swain, and Moore? I started digging around, 
sure enough, it was. And what I found was that no one had ever really written about him before. I mean, there were no books published about Paul Cravath, even though he was this tremendously influential uh, legal figure. And so, so digging around, what I also realized is that part of the reason there are no kind of scholarly books about him is that there's a lot of evidence we're missing. So, so the more research I did and the more kind of gaps in the historical record I found, the more I realized that I had to tell the story as, as a novel, as fiction, so that I could imaginatively fill in the gaps where the historical record was incomplete. So what responsibility did you feel to the, you know, long dead, but real people whose story you were telling? How did you come to shape their voices in a way that you felt would be authentic to who they were in life? Or did you more concentrate on how you could tell a compelling story? Yeah, you know, that's, that was sort of a day-to-day struggle and, as you said, responsibility in, in telling a story like this. And that's something, you know, that I've grappled with on, on pieces of writing before. You know, when I wrote the film The Imitation Game, a few years ago, that was something that had been this tremendous responsibility of how to tell kind of Alan Turing's story for the first time on screen and how to tell it in a way that was still, it was filmable, but that remained true to kind of the essence of his story. In other words, even if, even as I change kind of moment to moment things, even as I amalgamate certain events, amalgamate certain side characters, the point always had to be in both of these pieces, that I'm representing the essence of what happened, even if, you know, there's a couple of things I'm skipping over, or there's a few things I'm reordering. So, and so the same techniques that I ended up finding useful on uh, on Imitation Game ended up applying quite well to, to The Last Days of Night, which was saying, you know, the first thing I did was make this very long kind of chart of every event that I could prove, every event that I knew happened and have, you know, good period sourcing for. Um, was it then, on a wall and did you use red thread to connect things? <laughs> I did not. I was not like a missed opportunity in a cop show. We're always using red threads to, to do. I don't know why they always use red threads in, in like movies and TV shows, especially when the people are like hunting serial killers. It Probably because so it really pops on film. Yeah. Probably. I don't see how that would really help you solve a crime, but you know, I'm not a detective. No, no, I used, I used lots of little note cards. And so, and so then what I would find was, was to say, okay, here are two events. Um, you know, these were, these happened a month apart. It's kind of basically the same thing happening twice. I can just call these one event for the purposes of the novel. Um, and sort of moments like that. And then there were other bits of rearrangement that, that would happen. You know, one of the great exercises actually, after I was a few drafts in, and into the editing process on the book is me and the, and the researcher who I work with went through and we sort of made a, a copy of the book. We got three colors of highlighter. One color was for things that I knew 100% were true and could prove it. The second color was for things that I thought were probably true, but I cannot prove it. And the third color is for things that are certainly not true. And I can prove that they are not true. And so that, and so it was a great exercise to go through the book with these three colors. And somewhere I have this copy of it that's kind of brightly lit like a rainbow, where sentence by sentence, you can see, you know, this mix of things that are definitely true, things that are probably true, and then things that, you know, I just added it for narrative purposes. Um, and that's why the book ends with an author's note. There's kind of a 10-page thing at the end that goes through all the major plot points and says, this is definitely real. This I'm not sure about. 
this is certainly not, here's where I changed it, here's how I changed it. I think, you know, when we were talking about the responsibility of telling real people's stories, something that comes with that responsibility is a need to, to, to be upfront with the reader, with the audience, to say, you know, I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you, I don't have any cards up my sleeve, this is, you know, this is the narrative I'm telling, and these are why I've made the narrative choices that I have. Well, one of the things that I appreciated as a reader was that some of the sort of outstanding historical mystery elements to the true story through novelization, you were able to find a rationale for them. Uh, here I'm thinking about a true occurrence, which was Nikola Tesla voluntarily signing over his patents to George Westinghouse when Westinghouse just came and asked him, he said, I, my company is about to go bankrupt if I have to abide by the agreement that you and I made. And Tesla just let him off. And I, I've i wondered about that. I've wondered about what that says as a about a person. Um, and through your novel, which I will not spoil for anyone, uh, there is actually a reason behind it, uh, which I found very interesting. Another side character, who again is a real person, was Paul Cravath's real life wife, Agnes Huntington, who was an opera singer, and you give her a fascinating backstory. What's it like trying to develop the character of a person who does show up in the historical record, but there's just not much about her? So, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Agnes Huntington, um, the woman who, not to give away the ending, becomes Paul Cravath's wife. And it's always funny, you know, trying to not do spoiler alerts for something I know, like this. I know, for historical That's, events. What? Right. It's like it's always funny because the you know anyone listening to this can just Google or Wikipedia these people and you can see what happens at the end. But Agnes was such a fascinating character to explore um, because we had so few records. And, you know, I developed some theories about her. All I can all I can prove is that we know very little about her seemingly by by her choice. There is for someone who became as famous an opera singer as she did. We really don't know a lot of information about her family history. You know, I was, I was able to find some things that I don't think anyone had found before. Um, census data actually showing uh, that she wasn't from the place she said she was from. Uh, some things like that. And, and it was great. I mean, what, what Agnes was so fascinating because it meant I got to this, this sort of wonderful blank slate of a character. Someone who I knew a few things about and then got to imagine the rest. Um, and imagine what it would be like to be this famous opera singer who begins this very strange romance with this ambitious young lawyer and, and to get to play with sort of what I imagine they would have been going through. I mean, she was someone who was at that time, you know, when they met, she was, and we don't know how they met, um, you know, none of the, their marriage announcements say. So even just trying to figure out how that happened, you know, she was this very high class, famous opera singer who traveled all over the world. And Paul Cravath was from Tennessee and new to New York and was kind of on the make on his way up, but was certainly not anything like the kind of high society types that she had been around before. So that kind of between class romance was really interesting to me to get to explore in the conversations that I would imagine that they would have about that were one of my favorite parts in, in writing the book. Another thing I appreciated, and you kind of started out the book like this because you didn't choose one of the scientists and inventors to be sort of the eyes of the audience you chose a lawyer 
you talk about the power of story and how as an attorney, words and story are kind of your tool uh, to a jury, to a court. What sort of background do you have that gave you that insight into how lawyers function? So I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm going to be the bearer of bad news here when I tell you that I'm actually not a lawyer. Um, which is a very funny thing. I feel like I, I get into conversations with lawyers about this book, and I always have to preface them by saying, you know, I'm, I, I love writing about lawyers, but I'm actually not one. My parents are lawyers, and I have a lot of lawyers in my family. And the big initial creative decision of this book was to tell the story from Paul Cravath's perspective, not from Edison's or Westinghouse's or Tesla's. And what that meant is you had this kind of very clever young attorney telling the story and not a scientist, which allowed me narratively to, to one, not side necessarily with either Edison, Westinghouse, or Tesla in this grand dispute, and then also have this kind of interlocutor of a character, someone who is not, you know, one of the great scientists of his generation. So as people are trying to explain these scientific concepts to him about how light bulbs work, about the kind of early days of electricity, you know, there's these chapters where Paul just sort of says, like, yeah, 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 I get it. Move along. I don't care about the details. Just give me everything I need to know so that I can go win this case. Like he doesn't he doesn't want all the scientific details. And so he sort of became a lens for the audience that way to kind of help as Paul is learning the science. So is the audience and uh, so is the reader. And so it actually helps kind of get the information across to a layman because because Paul's one. And at the same time, as you were mentioning, I think, you know, one of the moments where I Became to, came to really identify with Paul as a protagonist is, is when I realized that so much of his job as a litigator was to tell stories, was to take this story of this rivalry between Edison and Westinghouse and to frame it in court the way Westinghouse would like to see that story framed. You know, he was, Paul was doing the same thing with the story of Edison and Westinghouse that I was doing as a writer of the book. I was kind of focusing on some events and skipping over others. I was choosing what seemed most important. I was amalgamating little details. And, you know, Paul would do the same in court. Paul would do the same in his briefs to tell his readers, as I was telling mine, his version of the narrative. And that gave me, I think, a great insight into him as a character and made him really fun for me to write because I felt like I understood how his mind worked. Something that may come as a surprise to people who only know about Thomas Edison through maybe grade school science and history or, well, he invented the light bulb, is that Thomas Edison was one of the nation's first patent trolls, more or less. Could you describe a little bit about how Thomas Edison was able to spin this sort of mythos about himself, which I think has been very successful? Yeah, Thomas Edison is this fascinating figure this kind of great self-made man of the late 19th century. You know, he was born very poor in Michigan. Um, when he was a teenager, he started uh, riding the rails. Um, he was a butcher boy, which meant that he rode on the back of railroad cars and sold candy and newspapers to the men in the cars. And, and as he was doing that, I mean, he was kind of literally homeless as a teenager. And he went from being, you know, a homeless teenager to by the time he was 30, had the largest mansion on Fifth Avenue in New York. That is the kind of self-made success that Thomas Edison 
accomplished. So how did he do it? Well, you know, his first step, and I love this is a real story about him that's in the book, but I've always loved this as a really indicative story of the kind of person Edison was. When he was a teenager, riding on the back of these trains, he would uh, start chatting with all the Western Union men in the various stations. The train would stop. And the he would hear the Western Union men complain. This one piece of equipment they had just didn't work the way they wanted it to. And it made their job more difficult. It made it more time-consuming. He was so shocked that none of them ever did anything about it. You know, they had this piece of equipment that didn't do, that wasn't as efficient as they wanted it to be, and they just kind of complained. And so Edison said, okay, well, let me see if I can fix it. He takes this thing home, spends some time tinkering, and he makes this real improvement to this Western Union device and registers his first patent on something called the automatic repeater, which he then sells for, I think, $200, which was quite a bit of money at the time, and certainly to him at the time. And now he's off to the races. He's, you know, as a teenager, this professional inventor. And that was kind of always his system. I mean, he would sort of look for gaps in the marketplace and then come up with technology to fill that gap. It was never about abstract science for him. It was always about the marketplace. And so, you know, he was someone who was able to parlay these inventions into building what I would suggest is the first real R&D lab in American history. You know, by the time he makes it to New Jersey, he's got a hundred engineers working under him on these projects. And and Edison, you know, was not, he wasn't Einstein. I mean, he wasn't this kind of theoretical guy. Edison was the guy who said, when they came, for instance, to the issue of the light bulb, people had been trying to make indoor incandescent electric lights for a hundred years and no one could get them to work. And Edison was the guy who said, you know what, I think we're a couple years away from getting this technology to work, surveying what was around at the time. And so he hired 100 guys and stuck them in a lab in Menlo Park, New Jersey, and said, you have a year to make this work. You have unlimited resources. Don't leave until it does. And, and that was his system. And a year later, he has something that looks a lot like a modern light bulb. You know, to him, it was always, he was a salesman. It was always about the marketplace. It was always about finding things that almost existed, just needed one more push that he knew people wanted. And he'd bring it to them. He'd sell it to them. Edison always seemed to me like the kind of consummate salesman. So he would, you know, rules, uh, ethics rules at newspapers were a bit different in the 19th century. Um, so Edison had members of the press um, literally on his payroll. I mean, he would give reporters stock in his companies in exchange for favorable coverage. He would sort of stage these grand displays of things for the press to see. This becomes a point in the book, but some of his early light bulb displays in which he convinced the world that he had functioning light bulbs uh, were fake. Um, you know, there's stories of Steve Jobs doing this in some of the early Apple uh, announcements in, in the modern age, but displaying technology that appears to work on stage. And then as soon as you get it backstage, like it all falls apart. Um, he did a lot of stuff like that um, because he knew that his job wasn't just to make things. It was to convince the public to buy them and buy them. They certainly did. So just to refocus on the Harper Lee Prize again, many of the books that are selected as finalists or as, as winners have an element discussing race, just as To Kill a Mockingbird discussed race. There is an interesting side character who, I say side character, but he was a historical 
figure. And I had no idea that Paul Cravath, founder of Cravath's Weight and More, had this in his background. His father, I'm going to say Erastus Cravath. That's right. Yep, that's right. All right, Erastus Cravath. He he does appear in the book, and you discuss it. Could you talk a little, just a little bit about him and his background uh, as an abolitionist? And in, indeed, I think that he was involved in the Underground Railroad. Uh, just fascinating mm-hmm. history to this guy. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Hall comes from this really interesting line of preachers and humanitarians. Um, his grandfather was uh, a traveling preacher and was one of the founders of Oberlin College uh, because his grandfather had devoted his life to women's education. Paul's father, Erastus Cravath, um, was a, a medic during the Civil War, was also a preacher, worked for the Underground Railroad, and then was one of the founders of Fisk University, which was one of the first colleges for the children of, of freedmen in the South after the war. And so, so Paul comes from this kind of great line of devout religious do-gooders. And then Paul comes to New York and invents the modern concept of corporate law. And that was really interesting for me as a character because in some way he strayed so far from his family and in other ways he didn't. And what that must have been like for him you know, he had, his father and mother lived at Fisk University for Paul's whole life. Um, you know, that was a big part of, of his family. And he's the one who kind of left and went off to New York to become this tremendous titan of the legal industry. And so I think that was, there was something about that that I definitely, I knew I had to include in the book because it was just so amazing that that was true. And to what that says about Paul, about his relationship to race in America in the late 19th century and how it was different from his father's relationship to it and whether he was trying to continue to uphold his father's principles or whether Paul had strayed from them. And then I'm asking all the authors this. Do you remember the first time you either saw the movie To Kill a Mockingbird or read the book? Yes, I definitely read it uh, first, uh, which I'm, I'm, I mean, the movie is wonderful too, but I'm, I'm glad that I read the book first. Um, and it was in it was in high school. I'm trying to remember what what grade it was, but I remember being being totally transfixed. Um, and it was it was definitely one of those things. You know, I remember being a huge influence when I was young. And to think now that I'm, you know, it's, it's 20 years later, and I'm a writer, and I get to be nominated for something with Harper Lee's name on it um, is pretty tremendous. Okay, well. Thank you so much for talking to us, Graham. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to Graham Moore for joining us to discuss his book, The Last Days of Night. Up next, we will have the final finalist for the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction, James Grappondo, author of Gone Again. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here with James Grappondo, the author of Gone Again, one of the finalists for the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction. James, thanks so much for joining us. Very happy to be here. Thank you. So were you aware that your book was being submitted for the Harper Lee Prize? No, actually it wasn't. That was done um, by my publisher. But uh, I guess they saw a fit. You know, I've, I've had the same publisher now for 25 novels, Harper Collins. My editor, Carolyn Marino, has edited 23 of those 25 novels. And... She has, um, it was actually her idea to create this Jack Switek 
series going back to, oh, uh, maybe around 2000, 1999 or something like that. And so I'm not surprised that she, she, uh, she snuck this in behind my back because I think she loves Jack Switek more than I do. And for our listeners, you do not have to have read the previous books in the Jack Switek series. I actually wasn't aware when I first started reading this as part of the selection committee for the Harper Lee Prize that this was a series. Uh, and I was not at all lost, uh, so you can dive in and, and just pick up the book. Uh, James, is it hard to write that kind of standalone when you've been with this character for, I believe, 13 other books? That is the biggest challenge, I think, when you're, um, when, when you're writing a series, is keeping it fresh, keeping the storyline straight, you know, and not having your character, my serial character, Jack Switek, is in... I think 13 of my 25 novels. So, um, and it's, which makes it a real advantage to me that I've had the same editor for all 13 of those Jack Swiatek novels, because if I have Jack doing something that really Jack Swiatek wouldn't do, she'll be the first one to, to call me on it. The challenge then, like you say, is to, is I don't want readers to have to go back and read. I'd love it if they would go back and read all of the other 12 Jack Switek novels when they read Gone Again, but I want them to be able to pick it up and simply enjoy it as a standalone book. Um, and I think the way you do that is that Jack is an evolving character, you know, so yes, he has to be consistent with previous books, but you know, he started out in the pardon in 1994 as unmarried, young, idealistic attorney who defends death row inmates for an organization called the Freedom Institute. And by gone again, he's married to, of all people, an FBI agent, which is an interesting mix between a criminal defense lawyer and an FBI agent. Um, and they're expecting a child. So he's in a different place. Uh, uh, personally and professionally, and I think that that evolution keeps it fresh and makes the standalone notion of a Jack Switek novel work, even though it's part of a 13-book series. So for our listeners, I'm actually going to discuss less about the plot of Gone Again than I have either of the two other books, and that's because there are twists in this book which really work and I think will work best if I don't spoil them. But James, can you describe what's happening to Jack Switek and his wife and, and his career at the beginning of this book and how this adventure starts out? Yeah, you know, um, as I mentioned, Jack started out um, as uh, this young idealistic attorney in The Pardon in 1994 who defends death row inmates. And the primary tension, his personal tension in his life was his father, who was the law and order governor of Florida, who was signing the death warrants for his clients. And Jack um, thought he actually might have had an innocent client who was sentenced to death and appeals to his father. And that blows up because of personal reasons and the execution goes forward. So that story sort of, I felt, you know, uh, tied, it, tied itself up neatly and we left that alone. You know, I moved on from Jack for the next five novels. Then I came back, and Jack's career and 
uh, life evolved and he aged in real time. So now you fast forward to gone again and he's in his early 40s. He's more mature, but he has gone away from, gotten away from the death penalty work where he started. And I thought it would be very interesting. And that's really where the kind of the the, the beginning seeds for Gone Again um, were laid was this idea that Jack should have a case that takes him back to his roots. Um, and his roots were with the Freedom Institute and, and death penalty work. His wife doesn't want him doing that kind of work anymore for a lot of reasons. It takes a huge personal toll on you to be dealing with questions of life and death every day. And they're starting a family and um, so forth. Some of these are selfish reasons. Some of them are just reasons you can relate to that um, uh, you need to, you know, as, as starting a family, you have to make these adjustments. So I knew Jack was going to have a death penalty case in this, but I didn't want Gone Again to be simply another uh, race against the clock, you know, death penalty case. I knew it had to have a twist. So, and this isn't giving any away about the plot because this is in the book jacket, but basically, I mean, the, the hook that I came up with to to give Jack the push he needed to go back into death penalty work is that a woman comes to him um, and explains that her daughter, 17-year-old daughter, was uh, brutally murdered. The man who was convicted of killing her is facing execution. His death warrant has been signed. And oddly to Jack, the mother wants Jack's help in stopping the execution. And the reason he learns is that she is convinced her daughter, Sashi, is still alive and that the man is innocent. Uh, and the story takes off from there. So, James, the other two finalists, uh, Jody Bacot and Graham Moore, are full-time writers and screenwriters. But you have a different background. You're actually a practicing attorney. Can you talk a little bit about your non-writing career? Yeah, you know, I started as a lawyer. So, but uh, in in geez, I, I mean, I I did death penalty work, so that's sort of the connection to gone again and the pardon and Jack's background. That was my first job out of law school um, was working for a federal judge on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which covered Florida and Georgia. And Florida and Georgia at the time were executing more death row inmates than the other 48 states combined. So it was huge immersion in that, in that kind of work for me. Uh, and then I moved on from that, uh, much the way Jack did, and, and, and became worked for a very large law firm in Miami, probably the largest firm in Miami at, at the time. But, you know, although I always wanted to be a lawyer, um, and it was my goal to become a lawyer, I always had a dream. And the dream was to write a novel. I loved writing. And I, you know, I was always one, that, that goofball in college who would actually take the course that forced you to write a paper because I loved that whole process of, you know, of words and, 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 and rhythm and so forth, uh, that all is a part of the writing process. And so even the research I enjoyed. So when a show in the late eighties called law and uh, LA law became very popular, 
either arrogantly or naively, I decided I can do that, <laughs> you know, and so I wrote uh, The Pardon, and that became my first novel, and I actually did stop practicing law for about five or six years, but I missed the practice. You know, I wasn't, I've, I'm, I wasn't one of those lawyer authors who became a writer uh, because uh, I hated what I was doing. I actually liked the practice of law and, and the camaraderie of being part of a law office and the intellectual stimulation of being around a lot of very bright and talented people. And so 15 years ago, my best friend came to me uh, and he was working on a really fascinating case uh, for um, uh, one of the largest fresh fruit producers in the country. And it involved the theft, alleged theft of the genetic code to the world's most successful pineapple. And he said, you know, this is a great case and I need help on it. And why don't you come help me? And oh, by the way, um, it, because it involves pineapples, it uh, involves a lot of travel to Hawaii and Costa Rica. So, Oh, that must have been very well, difficult for you, James. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I said, okay, I'm on board. And that one, you know, that one-time gig, that case ended up going on for about seven years. And the firm was Boyd Schiller Flexner, where I practice law now. And I've been here for 15 years as counsel. And it works very well because, you know, back when I wrote my first novel, there was no such thing as telecommuting. You know, nobody had a smartphone. There was email was just catching on, you know, and now uh, there's so much more flexibility. And I've gotten to a point where I can, I can write a novel pretty quickly. It doesn't take me two years like it, you know, it used to. And uh, the fact that I write a book that's in the series, that saves me three months of time alone. I don't have to create a new character, right? I have, I, I know who the lead character is of the story. So, um, so sort of working at the law firm and writing as a dual career um, has worked for me. And what do your coworkers at Boy Schiller think of your books? Do you know, that's an interesting question because um, I'm actually shocked at how many of them read. And that's something I tell, uh, I speak to students a lot, and I'm actually going to be teaching at University of Miami Law School um, come uh, next fall, uh, a course on law and literature. But the first thing I will tell them is what I've been, I've been pleased to find at Boy Schiller is that you can't give up reading as pleasure because one thing that you will hear from so many lawyers or other professionals is, oh, I, just, I just don't have time to read. I read all day. Um, and that's just a slippery slope because you can easily turn into one of those people who doesn't know anything about anything except what you happen to be working on at the moment. And books, you know, fiction, works of fiction, whether it's gone again or, or whatever is, I think it's important to, 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 uh, to keep that as part of your recreational um, uh, agenda is, is to continue reading. To get back to the issues in the book for a second, one of the things I appreciated about Gone Again is, you know, this is an older and wiser Jack Switek who is returning to 
a place of his youth, the work of his youth. And as you said, he's he's married to an FBI agent and he really had he's not um, heavily criminal defense, uh, pro criminal defense. He's not heavily pro prosecution. He really has kind of a more moderate view um, of things, which I appreciate. And I was wondering, with your experience of the law, being an attorney, your early death penalty work, do you think that over the course of your career, your opinion of the death penalty has changed, your views on um, the people on death row, criminal defense work, do you think that you've undergone a sort of shift in your thoughts on the death penalty and death penalty cases? I think it's evolved. Um, I, I don't know if it's shifted that much, uh, but it's definitely evolved. Uh, you know, one of the things I pride myself on is that, you know, whether you read Gone Again uh, or The Pardon, which are really, those are the only two books that deal with the, of the 25 that deal with the death penalty. But if you read either of those books, I would defy anyone to read them and know where I stand on the death penalty. Um, and that's intentional because I, I, I mean, I hate preachy books that have a, that scream a particular point of view. Um, and I would rather stimulate thought about it and entertain you rather than tell you how to think and bore you to tears. Uh, so, so that's, that's my primary goal with this is to entertain you and maybe address the uh, difficult issues, but uh, in a thought-provoking and not a preachy way. Um, you know, I remember, and, and you can be surprised with it. I still remember when I did my first book tour for, um, for The Pardon. This is 19, fall of 1994. I did a, did a radio interview like this, but it was face-to-face um, in Boston, and the radio host um, was very chatty and very nice before we got on the air. And we got on the air and she suddenly kind of turned on me and, and said, Mr. Grappando, uh, three years ago, my husband and I were walking home from the ballet. Uh, we were about a block and a half from our car. A man came up with a, with a gun, demanded uh, my jewels and shot my husband and he died. Where do you stand on the death penalty? Um, and the surprising thing about that was, and I kind of like blah 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 blah. I was, you know, kind of young and not expecting this at all. And turned out she was against the death penalty, which kind of made the conversation flow in a very interesting um, direction. Once once we got we got past that and. So it's a complicated issue, and I don't, you know, I, I don't want anyone to to approach these books thinking that because Jack thinks a certain way, or because the mother of the victim feels a certain way, or because anyone in my books feels a certain way, that that necessarily reflects how I think. So another thing I appreciated about Gone Again was you have a real sense of place. This takes place in Miami. And from the weather to the architecture and building to the street scenes, I feel like you really get a feel for the city. Now, I don't believe you're a native Floridian. Is that right? That's correct. But you've uh, chosen to spend your adult life in Florida? 
Yeah, you know, I grew up in um, a small town in northern Illinois called Antioch, Illinois, which is on the Illinois-Wisconsin border, uh, which probably uh, couldn't be more different from <laughs> Miami, Florida. But when I graduated high school, my father retired and the entire family moved to Florida. So even though I was slated, to, I was already enrolled at University of Illinois and did go there for one year, I transferred to the University of Florida. Um, and my two closest friends um, from, uh, that I met at the University of Florida were both Cuban immigrants uh, from Miami. Carlos and Raul were my two closest friends. Um, I don't think I ever met a Carlos or a Raul when I was growing up in Antioch, Illinois. So, um, and I would go home to go back to Miami with them over the breaks during college. And I fell in love with the place and knew I was going to live here. Um, and I'm still friends with Carlos and Raul and uh, uh, they still live in, in Miami. Um, and, and I love the place. So, now, I say I love the place, but it has a lot of warts. You know, I kind of think of it as sort of, you know, it's sort of like the, the, the reckless youth. You know, it has all the beauty and, and, and the, the intrigue and the sex appeal and all of that, but you just know that it's going to do something to break your heart or, or something totally self-destructive, um, which is just in Miami's nature, which makes it not only an interesting place to write about, in the book, but you know, it's almost kind of its own character. It has that vibe and that feel to it, and and I do hear that from a lot of people that they just love the sense of place and Gone Again or, or any other Jack Swiatek novel that that they pick up. So what's next for Jack Swiatek? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we're sitting here talking about Gone Again, and I'm and I'm thrilled that it's it's nominated for the Harper Lee Prize, but. Um, I've already, Jack has already appeared on the bookshelves in a book called Most Dangerous Place, which came out earlier this year. And I've already written the next Jack Switek novel, which is called A Death in Live Oak, um, which takes a look, takes the readers and Jack to a different part of Florida, North Florida, where I went to college and went to the University of Florida. Um, and, you know, I said earlier in the interview that there's probably no more different place on earth than Miami than there is Antioch, Illinois, but I, I stand corrected now that I think about it, North and Central Florida probably is the most different place on earth from Miami, Florida. So, so, uh, it's fun to take Jack on these excursions and, uh, so that will be released, um, I'm told, I I think February of 2018. Um, so, and then it's just a question of my editor and I deciding, um, do I take a break from Jack or do I write another Jack? But one thing is for sure is that there will be more Jack Swyshek novels. I think he still has a lot of room to grow. And then I've been asking all of the finalists this question. Do you remember the first time you either read To Kill a Mockingbird or saw the film? Yeah, I have a, I have a vivid memory of it because one of the, um, the and the person who introduced me to to the book was um, James Corrigan, my English professor in high school, who had us read two works that still are important to me to this day. And one was To Kill a Mockingbird, and the other 
that he had us read was a play written by Robert Bolt called um, A Man for All Seasons. And I'm going to use both of those books in uh, my course uh, at University of Miami Law School on law and literature, which is an exploration and a search for the truth through literature in this world of alternative facts and fake news, because I don't think there was a more honest writer than Harper Lee. And if you want to Google or, or read um, A Man for All Seasons, there is probably no more honest person in literature than the character Thomas More. And that's still being cited, too, uh, most recently in the ex-FBI director James Comey's testimony before Congress. <laughs> that's right. The importance of the oath. Exactly. Well, no one rid me of this meddlesome priest. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us and speaking with us today. And good luck for you and for Jack Switek wherever he next takes you. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you to James Grappando and to our other two authors, Jody Picot and Graham Moore, for joining us for this special episode of the Modern Law Library. If you're curious about which one of these three will take home the 2017 Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction, check abhjournal.com in mid-July when we'll be announcing the winner alongside the University of Alabama School of Law. If you enjoyed this special episode, please let us know about it. Rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. Thank you for joining us. I'm Lee Rawls with the ABA Journal.